It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of the Yankees Magazine Podcast. I'm John Schwartz. I'm the deputy editor for Yankees Magazine. With me right now, we have our editor-in-chief, Al Sanasiri. Hello. Hey, Al. How you doing? Great. Good. Welcome. And, of course, we have our executive editor, Nathan Makaborski. Hi there, John. Hello. I think last time we did this, we were talking about getting into the swing of September, and now we are legitimately in September. We have about two weeks left of the regular season. But this is actually going to be a somewhat off-field episode a little bit. We're going to talk about another season that's starting up right now, which is football. We have a really, really great story in the September issue of Yankees Magazine about a former Yankee who, if you're anything like me, you don't even know was a former Yankee. You know him as a football legend. Al's going to talk to us about that one. And then we're going to talk about the anniversary of September 11th. And in particular, the way that Bernie Williams remembers that date and a night that Nate, you spent with him at the 9-11 Memorial Museum in Lower Manhattan. So, you know, before before we do that stuff, though, since that stuff is both grim and so off-field, obviously, there's a lot of good stuff happening on the field that I think we, sh- we can talk about first. This past weekend, you go into Boston, and I know that Boston's a little bit removed from the, the World Series title last year, and they've obviously had, you know, some shakeups and some drama, but... You take three or four for them. You knock them out of the play. You knock them out of the division race. You can bet that the team enjoyed that uh, New York, New York playing in their clubhouse that night. Yeah, it's sure beats last year. You know, watching them celebrate here in September and then watching them celebrate here again in October. This feels a whole, whole heck of a lot better. And look, it's what these guys set out to do. You know, the Yankees had some big goals in mind, and uh, this is you know another step toward that we're getting close to you know accomplishing the first of of those things which is a a division title I think I said this in the last episode but just the Red Sox just seemed like that like unkillable zombie that you were just waiting to rise from the earth and and look I mean as we record this they're still technically alive for the wild card but they they just fired their GM I I don't think that they think that things are going so great right now it's just it's hard it's it's hard to believe that I just kept waiting and waiting and waiting all year for that run. I think I've talked about it 14 times in this podcast and probably 14 episodes this year that the Red Sox were probably about to make a run and while they were going through everything that they went through and dealing with the struggles they had, it's not like the Yankees weren't dealing with their own struggles. The Yankees were just winning all the time. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think I've said this probably quite a few times this year too. You know, the, what the Yankees have accomplished this year on the field is very, very impressive. Um, the, the win total they have through September uh, 9th is tremendous. Where they are in the standings, is it's been a great season thus far. But it's even more impressive when you think about the number of players they've had on the DL, the number of injuries they've had, and 
And unlike, you know, whatever struggles the Red Sox have had, the Yankees have somehow unbelievably found ways to continue to overcome and continue to overcome. And it's, it's absolutely remarkable. Regardless of what happens the rest of the way, it's remarkable to this time. And, and that's really worth pointing out. I, I think that, you know, I'll parrot the baseball writer Joe Sheehan for a little bit here. Baseball used to care a lot more about the 162 and a lot less about the next, you know, whether it was eight or now 11 wins that you had to get to win the World Series. And I think a little bit of that's been lost, that at the end of the year, we, we only really care about who wins it all. We only really talk about who wins it all. You know, the 2001 Mariners, for example, the 116-game winning team, you don't hear that as often talked about as one of the great teams in baseball history because of what happened in the postseason. But at the same time, we're very forgiving of the idea of, say, the A's and, you know, Billy Bean's old thing that, you know, my blank doesn't work in the postseason. So, you know, there there's some imbalance there. But I just keep going back to, and neat, you know, not to give away what you're working on right now. I was going through some of my old quotes for a story that I'm working on about C.C. Sabathia, and I found a quote that was from May of this year. And the quote that I sent to Nate for something was literally, you know, these fans you know, should be happy with every time this team wins because it doesn't make sense how they're doing it. And that was something he said in May when at the time you thought, you know, Seve was going to be back really soon and Dellen definitely was going to be back really soon and Stanton would be back any day now and all these things and Hicks and all. Now here we are in mid-September. They're still <laughs> going through the exact same stuff they were in early May. And yet this weekend, probably they'll win their 100th game. I think, yeah, I think it's remarkable again. And, and you know what? It, it also speaks to the depth throughout the organization. Um, and, you know, and that's something that teams talk about all, oh, man, we have a really deep organization. We're deep at a lot of positions. It's one thing to say it. It's one thing when it's really tested. And I mean, really tested the way it was this year. And you have guys that continue to come up and continue to come up and continue to come up and play at the same level or even better than the level of the guys who were injured throughout the year. And then the guys who were injured come back. And I, I just think that's a tremendous tribute to Brian Cashman and his team. And, you know, people talk about best general managers in the game. And I, I don't know how he wouldn't be at the top of the list, certainly over what he's done in, in kind of rehauling, uh, excuse me, overhauling the minor league system. And again, it's all good and well talking about how he overhauled the minor league system and made it strong. But now you're actually seeing how valuable that is in a season like this, in an important season like this. And the funny thing is, though, you're seeing a lot of reverse depth, too. <laughs> you know, like on Monday night, Mike Talkman gets hurt. He's probably out for the season at this point. So, you know, on any normal team, you would think, you know, oh, my God, how are they going to respond to this situation here? The Yankees are going to get Giancarlo Stanton back and put him him in there. Domingo Herman, who's been a great story this season, but, you know, he's he's definitely struggled away from Yankee Stadium. I mean, he's way up against an innings, lim uh, innings count that you wonder how much longer, you know, before he starts seeing some arm fatigue and things like that. So they're going to move him to the bullpen and they're going to put in CeCe Sabathia. And it's just like these little things. The Yankees aren't using their depth necessarily to deal with, at, at this point of the season, they're not using their depth to deal with the problems they have anymore. You know, their depth, in a sense, is almost being replaced by the, the stars. Yeah, it's it's it doesn't make any sense. Like, this is what I've kind of been, as you alluded to earlier, kind of been working on for our, our next issue is just talking to some of the guys, trying to find out, like, some of the reasons for this. And 
a lot of them are kind of in the same boat, sort of scratching their heads. Like, not that they didn't think all these players who came up and filled in had talent, but to see them all kind of excel, like, you know, it's hard to think of a guy who, like, came up and was given an opportunity and didn't run with it. You know, they all seem to, whether you've heard of these guys before or not, uh, they take the chance that they're given, and and they've all really come through. So it's... uh, like I keep saying, it just doesn't make much sense. I've, I've never seen anything like it. But the thing is, you know, as this team approaches win number 100 and then beyond, because I think, you know, there's two weeks worth of games left here or whatever, this year needs to be remembered. It might not go great in the postseason, you know, whether it's, let's say, Oakland or Cleveland. You know, the Yankees have obviously struggled against those teams this year. They both, you know, Cleveland just has such an interesting pitching staff they're going to be throwing out there in an offense that works really well. Oakland, God only knows what goes on when the Yankees play that team, but it's terrible. Um, and then, of course, you, you know, waiting, you assume, is going to be the Astros. It might not go great in October, but this has just been such a fun, strange season that I hope it is I hope it is remembered well. I hope it is remembered fondly despite what happens, what may happen. And, and also, you know, for all, maybe it's remembered fondly because there's a really cool parade. Lower Manhattan. That would make for a memorable end to a, a memorable season. That's a. There's absolutely no segue here, but we'll just kind of roll with it on the Yankees Magazine <laughs> there's podcast. No segue to a player who played a hundred years ago here. Yeah, no, I'm not. <laughs> Obviously, this leads us directly to. <laughs> you know, Al, Al, you you wrote a tremendous, tremendous story this month. And, Thank you. And, and you come right into it with a really coolly talking about. You know, this hyped right fielder in Yankees camp, and people thought he was going to change the face of the team forever. And, oh, no, 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 it's not Babe Ruth. It's a name that in some circles is as big as Babe Ruth in a sense, but just that I never really thought of that way, certainly in Yankee Stadium. So why don't you uh, talk to us a little bit about who you wrote about and why you wrote about it and how you got there. Well, thank you. I um, had long wanted to write this story about George Hallis, who, of course, everyone knows as being the founder of the Chicago Bears, George Papa Bear Hallis, and one of the greatest uh, NFL coaches in history. Founder of the Chicago Bears, but also, I mean, it's got to be said, one of the founders of the National Football League. Exactly. One of the founders of the of the National Football League, which, of course, is celebrating its its 100th anniversary this year as well. And, you know, and just, just as a football fan, as somebody who follows the sport and, you know, you just know him as one of the pillars of the sport and a guy who for a very long time held uh, the record for wins um, in NFL history and, and really just a, a god, a god of, of football in, in many ways, like Vince Lombardi or Don Shula or any any of those guys. But for quite a, a while, I, I knew that, you know, through research a long, long time ago, that he played baseball for the New York Yankees. And I know that he only played in a handful of games, I think 11 games, and had two hits or something like that. And just a very, very small flash-in-the-pan type of a career. So when I started here with the Yankees 17 years ago, I think we were doing like a sidebar or something on Hall of Famers who played for the Yankees. And of course, a person like this kind of gets an asterisk by it by his name because although he's not a baseball Hall of Famer, he's a football Hall of Famer, but he did play here. So I was always fascinated with the idea of writing a really in-depth story about George Hallis's time with the Yankees. In From my understanding of the fact that he had only played in a handful of games, I thought that he was a guy who 
you know, really was just kind of scratching the surface in terms of baseball talent and probably didn't have much of a chance to be, you know, much of a, of a major league player to begin with. Looking at the calendar and seeing as it was uh, the year that he played for the Yankees was 1919 and that the 100-year anniversary of it was coming up, I chose this year to publish the story and really take uh, several months or almost a year to report on the story and really do a lot of research on it. And like you were mentioning, what I found out was that he was much more than, you know, like your typical career minor leaguer who only plays for a very, very short time as like a September call-up or something like that because his, his talent in comparison to other ma- uh, major leaguers was marginal. It was quite the opposite. His talent was immense. He was the star of all stars. He was the guy who was going to bring the organization to another level, and the hype was was out of control. He came to spring training with the Yankees in 1919, fresh off of uh, winning MVP honors in the Rose Bowl uh, as a football player at the University of Illinois, and comes to the Yankees. And of course, medical medicine wasn't what it is then as it is today. He slides into third base in a spring training game in a a field uh, in Jacksonville, Florida against the Brooklyn Dodgers. The dirt, the infield dirt then also not what it is today. It was more like hard clay or sounds a lot like concrete to me, the way it was described, and does something very, very bad to his hip, which again, without modern medicine and technology, no MRIs. They really didn't know what he did to his hip. They just knew that he was hurt. So, you know, of course, the protocol or what they felt that the best thing to do was just rest for a couple of weeks and it'll get better. And, and obviously anybody who's, you know, had a serious hip injury knows that that isn't really the way that it works. You don't just jump back into it and give it a go. He did do that and he really was never the same player. And all of that led him to a very quick exit from baseball and led him on a transition from stardom in baseball to going to the minor leagues to not being in baseball anymore. And that's really where the story of his life begins. There's so much great like information in this feature story. I learned so much about George Hallis from reading this. And what I like is that, you know, so my knowledge of him prior to reading this was kind of like what your first couple sentences were about. You know, obviously one of the titans of football, but really didn't know a whole lot else about him beyond that. But I like how, you know, when you talk about his his early part of his career, both in baseball and football, there's sort of, you know, you sprinkle in a few little details that provide some foreshadowing into the type of like businessman and owner he was. And um, I guess that's a reason why the NFL, part of the reason why it's, it's, you know, been built so, so strong and, and uh, you know, the Chicago bears and the Hallis family are still, uh, still in business today. Yeah. You know, I spent a day in the Chicago public library with a research assistant who was so helpful in digging out uh, stories that I had never heard and never read. I interviewed his grandson, um, George Hallis McCaskey, who also shed light on things that I think had kind of just been buried for a long time and details that you just hadn't really heard about him for a really long time and certainly details that our readers would never, <laughs> never have been privy to. I think the thing that really stu- stood out to me the most was just how much fate was involved in his life and how many things and events that happened Um, that were fateful, things that could have so easily gone the other way. I think back on his early life, 
Uh, he's working for a factory and they were doing a, some kind of a celebration, uh, year end celebration or something like that on a boat on the Chicago River. And this is the most hardworking guy that you could ever imagine. A guy who's always on time for everything and early for everything. And he oversleeps and the boat catches on fire and most of the people die. You know, again, it was, it was just these fateful events and he wasn't on that boat, you know, and then, you know, he has this terrible hip injury with the Yankees and he goes home and then he gets an offer to work for a company in Decatur, Illinois and start up a, a, a football team for like in an industrial league. And um, he's able to recruit players and really build up this team to the level that it becomes a real draw. People are, are showing up in Decatur, Illinois every weekend to see them play. It's so interesting to me to be talking about this stuff right now. As you mentioned, it's the 100th anniversary of the league. And, you know, I, I think I'm alone here in saying, you know, just the huge grandiosity and everything like that of the NFL just drives me completely crazy. I mean, I, I just find it to be, look, I mean, I know we work for the Yankees, so spare <laughs> whatever. But, you know, it's just so impressed with itself. And it's uh, everything is a massive event and everything is the biggest, you know, moment in, of the year. And, and you you counter that with the factory in Decatur, Illinois, where he was working and, you know, coaching this football team, which, you know, 100 years later is the Chicago Bears, basically. You know, and, and one thing it reminds me a lot of is from my experience writing about the Negro Leagues and the way the Negro Leagues were founded at this, you know, just this YMCA now, you know, this building where a bunch of business people got together and, you know, they did this stuff. And, and you don't think of like this being how like this massive, you know, world stopping industry starts. But I mean, that's what you described in the story. It really was just a meeting of let's, let's figure out a way to schedule some games against each other and see what happens. It's really remarkable. And obviously you were in Canton, Ohio this summer as well. And you see it's a tiny, small town in, in the Midwest. And yeah, I mean, the guy he was working for, you know, with this factory, you know, finds out about this meeting that where some representatives from these, you know, industrial teams are going and he says, you know, George, you should be the guy that goes and he goes and, and that meeting is literally where the NFL is founded in a, in a showroom in Canton, Ohio. And but Nate, to your point also, he Hallis did have the foresight that he had something bigger than just an industry league. And um, when it got to the point where he literally couldn't, you know, handle the type of demand for seating uh, in Decatur, you know, he, you know, was quick to to tell uh, Staley, who was the, the owner of the factory, like, we got to bring this to a bigger town. And of course, that town being his hometown of Chicago. And this, you know, 20 something year old kid basically is able to put a deal together with the Chicago Cubs to let his, you know, small industry football team, industrial football team play at Wrigley Field. And he then has the foresight to say, you know what, we need to get some synergy with the Cubs. So we're going to name this team the Bears because football players are bigger than baseball players and Bears are bigger than Cubs. I mean, it was literally as rudimentary as that. And that's where it begins. And of course, it goes from there. And we all know what, like you just said, John, what the NFL is today and and what the Bears and, and all those, you know, original teams are today and what they mean to the sport and to the sports landscape. And, 
it all would have been really different had he not gotten hurt, maybe, and played it, uh, a great career with the Yankees. And then, of course, the other part of it that would have been different is the Yankees wouldn't have had that need uh, going into the next offseason for a star right fielder. The house that Howless built. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds weird. Yeah. I've had a chance to do a couple, you know, historical features uh, like this in Yankees magazine where you're you're digging into, you know, lives and careers of people who lived and played, you know, 100 years ago sometimes. And it can be difficult. Uh, two things that I think are, are sometimes pose the greatest challenge are one, you know, it, it can be hard to find like uh, descendants or, or family members from some players from that long ago but when the family <laughs> still owns the team today it's pretty easy to track them down so um, I thought that uh, that was a nice addition to this story how you know receptive or or helpful was the uh, the Hallis family in in helping out Yankees magazine for this story yeah they were tremendous you know one thing that's kind of neat is and I think I wrote this in the story is that you know George Hallis is real dream for his legacy was that for his family to own the bears as they put it until the second coming (laughs) so so that's their timeline which is i guess long (laughs) that's how they describe it and they are very proud of that legacy with the bears and they're also very very prideful and and understand what their grandfather meant to what they're able to do in their life and and obviously also what he's meant to Chicago and to the Bears. You know, one anecdote I'll never forget was, you know, he was talking about, you know, just, you know, Sunday family gatherings at his grandfather's house. And, you know, grandpa comes out in the backyard and says, let's play a game of wiffle ball and, you know, smokes a ball over the fence or something and then starts talking about, you know, that reminded me of this game that I played and this game that I played. He's talking about his minor league days. He's talking about playing against Ty Cobb and all this stuff. And, you know, if ever you could have been a fly on the wall for something, it probably would have been one of those house um, family gatherings. I wish I was around and could have got invited to one of those. <laughs> you know, the other thing that I think readers who pick up this month's magazine will really appreciate along with this story is the photos um, which, you know, can be a challenge sometimes, too, when we're talking about a subject as as ancient as this one. How did you go about finding all these? It looks like they came from a lot of different places. So uh, how did you pull all these together? Yeah, well, you know, one thing that was um, great, the Bears um, did give us access to their facility. And um, our photographer, Ari Hecht, went out there and um, took some some great photos of uh you know, the statue of George Hallis. Um, probably my favorite photo um, in the piece is a photo that she took of um, kind of like a a mural to his entire life, basically. And in the middle of it is a bat that he used playing for the Yankees. And it's in the middle of all the photos of him winning games and celebrating things with the Chicago Bears. It's pretty remarkable when you think about it. Um, so that was neat. And then um, I also interviewed um, a few people from Decatur because there's actually, believe it or not, a museum dedicated to the Staley Corporation and, and factories. Uh, they, uh, in, a, in, a, in this very small town of Decatur, Illinois, about 180 miles from Chicago, there were decades, literally, where um, the Staley Corporation and factories 
you know, employed <laughs> a very, very large percentage of the people in that town. Um, and so there, they, you know, put up a, you know, a small museum dedicated to it. And of course, part of the Staley empire, I guess, out there was the sports teams that he created, the baseball team and the football team. So curator there provided me with like a treasure trove of photos of the early 1920s Staley football teams and the field that they played on. And of course, the Staley's was the team that became the Chicago Bears. So over the phone, she, you know, listed different photos that she had and kept asking me if I wanted them. And my answer was yes, yes, yes. I just kept saying yes to her because I wanted every one of them. I at least wanted to see every one of them and then um, made the tough decision of which which ones could get in and, and not. The irony of the whole thing is that there's, and I, I can't imagine that I, I missed anything, but there's literally... To my knowledge, one photo in existence of him with the New York Yankees. Uh, it's not the greatest photo, but it's literally the only photo, I think, in existence. And, and we and got it. it. And we got it. <laughs> <laughs> As we've been saying, it's a tremendous story. And if I can just log roll for Yankees Magazine for one second here. If you travel around, if you go to different stadiums, if you go to different sporting events, this, this is not the kind of story that you see in a team publication, in a game day program. This is remarkable that we get to do this kind of stuff, that you did this in this case. This is you know, a story two years in the making, a year or something like that. And 17 just, years in the making. Well, sure. <laughs> Great point. But it, it's just a fantastic story. You know, Baseball games can get long sometimes if you show up at the stadium. It's a great thing to to read while you wait for the game to start, to keep going back to between innings. And certainly you can find it online at yankees.com slash magazine. But it's a fantastic piece. It's called What If? And it does a great job of really, you know, diving into that question, kind of what if. This is so much, as we discussed, could have hinged on this guy. As his grandson says, if he could have hit the curveball, who knows uh, what would have happened to football history. But it's, it's a terrific piece. We hope we all read it. We will take a minute here, and then when we come back, we're going to discuss another awesome piece in the September issue, so stick with us. Hi, this is Luis Reino. You listen to the New Yankee Magazine podcast. This episode of the Yankees Magazine podcast is brought to you by MLB at Bat. Yankees baseball is always live with MLB at Bat. Follow the action with game tracking and video highlights, along with up-to-the-moment stats, standings, breaking news, and more. Download MLB at Bat today in the Apple App Store or Google Play. It's your number one app for Yankees baseball. And we are back. We just had a you know fantastic discussion on some interesting moments for the Yankees, happy moments for football fans around the country. Obviously, this time of year, always we need to stop everything we're doing a little bit and look back on, you know, certainly in our lifetimes, just you know the moment that really uh, shaped a lot of what you know we still live through today. And it's always from a baseball perspective, you know, you don't want to get too cute, you don't want to get too, you know news peggy on it in terms of finding ways to you know force the tragedy of september 11th into yankees magazine but nate you had a really special experience i know this year spending some time with bernie williams at the 9-11 memorial museum and wrote just a really incisive and considered and sharp story about that night yeah i mean i'd been there a couple times before um but it was really 
special being there with Bernie Williams because he lived through it. It was there's not a lot of guys who can say they were playing for the New York Yankees when when 9/11 happened. Um, so it's a different experience. And I, I've I've been down there with the the pinstripe old teams, and in, in those moments, it's kind of teaching younger people about what happened. And literally, uh, at this point, you're finding people who were not born. Right. They, Which is they, crazy. They know very little about it. But for the players who were here uh, during that fall and, you know, for people our age who were in this area during them, uh, during that time, we'll never forget it. So the museum there had an exhibit up. It's not up any longer, I believe, but it was a, a really cool look at sports and the role sports played in uh, in helping heal so Bernie took sort of a private guided tour with the museum curator, and then he spoke to an audience of, I would say, maybe 200 people, and uh, this was back in early April, and I had gone down there with our photographer, Barry Schneiderman. We thought, you know, we'll get a couple photos and do a little write-up on it in the next issue of, of Yankees Magazine, in the May issue, but sitting there in the audience and listening to Bernie Williams talk about all his experiences, you know, starting on September 11th and then for the next month, month and a half or so, I was just floored. And I said, our readers would love to hear this uh, or to read this. So, you know, I came, came into work the next day and I spoke to you, Al, and I said, I think, I think this is something more than a bomber bite. I think we should really kind of give this a little bit more space. And thankfully he agreed and Mm -hmm. we decided to, uh, to hold it till, till now. It's a very easy thing to trivialize in a sense, like I said, from a baseball perspective until you actually spend the time with it. And then you realize, and again, it's going to sound like I'm trivializing it by saying that you realize how important baseball was in those moments, that it wasn't just, you know, this you know silly little sport again. It was Americans getting back to gather again. It was Americans getting back to, you know, kind of turn off everything else for a little bit, a couple hours a night. I remember there being big discussions in the days afterward about, you know, whether football games should be canceled that weekend. And I remember I was was a student in Michigan at the time and there was a long back and forth and they did cancel it. And it was the right decision because you needed a little bit of time, you know, not to be in that situation. But you also, afterward, needed time to get back into that. And whether it's that Mets game, the first game back in New York, obviously, or any of those just incredible Yankees games down the stretch there, leading up to, of course, Game 3 of the World Series and George Bush being on the mound at Yankee Stadium in just this moment that, just in terms of sheer drama, in terms of sheer emotion, I'm not sure you can match. Yeah, you know, the the players really grappled with kind of the same thing like you know Bernie said he just assumed they would cancel the season he's like how are we going to go out and play a game when you know everybody's in pain like our country is there's much bigger things to to worry about right now than silly little baseball games but Joe Torre kind of put things in perspective and said you know you guys can actually help play a role in in helping maybe a, a little bit of a sense of normalcy to start to return or you know like you said just provide a, a gathering space just for people to get together and you know everybody was feeling so emotional during that time you don't necessarily want to be alone you know you want to be around people who are feeling the same thing that that can be helpful so uh 
you know, about four days after the attacks, the Yankees, you know, they gathered, had like a team gathering at the stadium just to sort of reconvene, get back together for the first time and and start talking about, okay, what are we going to do here? How are we going to move forward? You know, part of that was let's let's see what we can do for the city and and uh, Joe Torrey took a few players to a couple different sites where like the rescue and recovery efforts were, were going on and um, the first stop was at the armory on 26th street and when they walked in Bernie kind of had this feeling of like what are we doing here like we're we're a baseball team like are we even supposed to be here he just didn't know what to do or what to say and he saw a, a volunteer a red cross volunteer there and just was like, I don't know what to say, but can I give you a hug? That was certainly something that stayed with him. And uh, he spoke about that that night. And they actually were able to reconnect Bernie with the woman that he hugged that day. And they hadn't seen each other since. It had been 18 years. He had always kind of wondered, like, who she, he didn't even know her name, who she was, whatever happened to her. And um, so, I mean, that was just another like amazing aspect of this night where I was just like, we gotta, we gotta tell this story. What were, what were the moments like, or the seconds like when they saw each other for the first time again? I mean, what was Bernie's reaction and what was her reaction? So she spoke first before Bernie came out and her name is Eva Usadi. And, um, she's like now a, a mental health, uh, professional. And, you know, she recalled with great clarity that, initial moment and uh you know said it was he's it was a real hug like i could feel his warmth and his compassion and then they brought bernie out and you know she knew that obviously he was going to be there and that they were going to meet but this was the first time that they had actually gotten a chance to see each other and you know they hugged once again and uh bernie told her you know i, I was the one that needed the hug <laughs> and uh you know they just they ha- immediately had a great connection again and you know, he was just like, this is this is how we'll say hi from now on. <laughs> Either of you guys remember the HBO special, Nine Innings from Ground Zero? Yeah, mm-hmm. I actually covered that for a, a piece we did on it yeah. uh, many years ago. Reading this reminded me a lot of that. And again, not to keep dwelling on the same point, but you know, I think it's very easy for people on the outside to say, why are we dwelling on baseball? You know, why don't we talk about real things? But then you talk to the people who went through it, and in, both in that documentary and also obviously Nate, in what you saw and what the players saw there, you know, actually like they needed baseball. They needed something. Maybe it wasn't just baseball they needed. Let's be fair. Maybe it was just some sort of distraction. Mm-hmm. But baseball is really good at doing that. And I, I happened to see that exhibit when it was still up there. And it, of course, it wasn't just baseball. I mean, you look at the. You know, incredible Mark Messier photo the, mm-hmm. of the him in the uh, fire helmet that, yeah. you know, is really just an iconic photo and all these things. And it's just a special thing to be a part of baseball. You, you see so many things going on around the world right now, obviously. And, you know, you look at these celebrity chefs or whatever who, you know, drop everything and go, you know, to start making food in the Bahamas and all these things that happen. And you recognize, you know, just everyone can offer something and you don't have to be an EMT and you don't have to be in, you know, the Marines or whatever in these moments, you know, everything, whatever you do and whatever you are a part of, it can be, you know, that that's kind of how a country and a civilization works, that everyone does their part. And I feel like that really comes through in this story that everyone had a role to play in the aftermath of 9-11. I agree with you. And I think you did a really great job of it, Nate, of, um, you know, taking 
people who are, you know, are looked at as baseball players um, in, in many regards, you know, star baseball players. And what you what you were able to do and really what they did in their the roles that they played in, in healing um, in 2001 is they, you know, they very quickly, like literally with the snap of a finger, changed you know, their almost identity, their public identity from baseball player to really caring people. And Bernie Williams, I think we've all done stories on, we've all known him very well and know that he's a really caring and good person um, to begin with. So his role in this healing process and going to, you know, the armory and, and you know, reconnecting, um, you know, with this woman, it doesn't surprise me at all. But I think you did a great job of really looking at them in their most important role, which is as human beings and caring human beings. And even, you know, the, the, the anecdote in there about Derek Jeter and what he did for the, you know, the, the young child whose father was lost, who was a pilot in one of the, you know, the planes that was hijacked. Um, you know, it really made sports heroes become heroes. And um, and I think the things that they did for, for people – uh, will never be forgotten, and it's, it's very special. I always remember our conversation I had with Chipper Jones talking about that first Mets Braves game after that, which was the game with the really famous Mike Piazza home run. And you know, Chipper, who loved beating the Mets and playing at Shea Stadium so much that he named his kid Shea as the best troll job ever against you know another fan base. You know, him him just talking about that game and just being like, "Yeah, that was okay." <laughs> that that kind of stuff happened, and. and you know, you, you go from there and, and you move forward six weeks or whatever, and you know you have the Jeter home run and the, <laughs> all these things. And, and for a little while there, it just looked like you know, just like kind of that Mets game that this was going to end in the way, in the right way. This was going to end in the way it was supposed to. And you know, if he, earlier in this episode I said that we don't always do a great job of remembering the season, we only remember the outcome. And I mentioned the 2001 Mariners as a team that should be remembered better. I think one exception to that really is the 2001 Yankees, who are always remembered just for those last six weeks. I think it's it's so true what you said. I think it's amazing to me that I think that team is a lot more remembered than the Arizona Diamondbacks, uh, and you know for the the way that they won those particularly those last two games at Yankee Stadium and extra innings or bottom of the ninth, you know, walk-off wins the way they, they did. You know, the game before that, that George Bush threw the first pitch out in, you know, that that team is in a lot of ways remembered more than any other team that year. A lot of guys that I've talked to for, for stories about that team, a lot of those guys look back on that being the most memorable season of their career. What's interesting about that is many of those same players had just won three championships or four championships in you know the previous five years, if you count 1996, yet this was the most memorable one. And it really, had, I think, had everything to do, obviously, with those last three weeks of the season. Al, you had alluded to this earlier about just what a, you know, a great person Bernie is and you know what a big heart he has. Playing baseball during that time uh, really kind of opened him up even more. And I thought that was really one of the most, you know, interesting things that I heard him talk about that night. Bernie was always on the field, somewhat reserved a little bit. You know, he, he would always just try and stay focused and, and tune out the crowd and stuff so that he could do his job. Um, but he talked about, you know, in those weeks after 9-11, 
just making eye contact more often with fans and, and shaking hands with the first responders who were brought back to the stadium to be recognized. And uh, just all these different things really kind of opened him up. And he, you know, felt different during that time than he had at any other point in his career. He just felt like everything he was doing was for the fans. And so that was that was part of what I, you know, heard that night where I was just like, you know, Yankees fans got to if if they weren't there that night, uh, hopefully uh, they'll they'll read it in Yankees magazine and and know where he's coming from. It's a great read and something that I'm, you know, as the editor of the magazine, very proud is in there. And and you really did a great job with it. Oh, thank you. I think John called it. What did you say? What was the word you used to describe it? Very considered. Uh, I think that's an accurate word. This one was like. It was hard to write, uh, and and I'm not just you know saying that in a flippant way, like because of the gravity of the subject matter. It was really something I had to think long and hard about before I could just dive in and start writing. You know, some stories we do here are kind of fun or flow out really easily. This one was one that I, I had to rattle around in my head a, a really long time first. You know, hopefully it came out good and uh, our readers enjoy it. It's a special story. It's called Never Forgotten. And in, I really, for all the reasons that we hope you always pick up Yankees Magazine, this is a special read. It's a special moment. It's a special, you know, look back. And it's a important story that we have in there. Part of a great issue. We've discussed a lot of the stories already. But we hope that you will stick with us, like our podcast, subscribe to it, review it, tell your friends about it, subscribe for them. Anything you can do to help, all of those reviews help, all the comments you send us to letters at yankees.com or podcast at yankees.com. This stuff is hugely helpful to us. Visit us at yankees.com slash publications where you can subscribe. Or, of course, as I've mentioned, go to yankees.com slash magazine to read all of our long-form content. We will be back in about two weeks. In the meantime... Follow us on Twitter at Yanks Magazine, and we look forward to hearing from you. Have a good one. Hi, this is Tommy Canely. For more stories like the ones you've been hearing about, subscribe to Yankees Magazine by visiting yankees.com slash publications or by calling 800-GO-YANKS. The MLB Ballpark app will complete your next visit to Yankee Stadium. Buy and manage game tickets, redeem special check-in offers, access exclusive content, and much more. Download the MLB Ballpark app today by visiting yankees.com backslash ballpark app.